We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. All right, we're in Luke chapter 12. Find your way to that place in your Bible, if you would like. Luke chapter 12, parable of the foolish rich man or a parable of the big barns. It's like I like to call it. It's camping season. Last weekend, a lot of folks from our church went up to Harris Beach for uh, camp out over the weekend. And then this week, I went up to Lake of the Woods with, uh, with my sons for a couple of days. And one of the things you do when you're camping uh, is you get out a pocket knife and you whittle a stick. I don't know why you do this. After having whittled many sticks over the course of my life, it has no use when you're done. It's a pointy stick. I mean, you could roast a marshmallow one, I suppose, but now you buy those metal ones at Walmart. You don't need to roast the thing. But yeah, so what, what generally happens, and maybe you do it different in your house, I don't know, you're sitting on a fire and the son will turn to you and say, Dad, can I have the pocket knife? I want to whittle stick. You say, sure. So you take the pocket knife out, you open up the blade, you hand it over, and what do you say? Be careful. It's sharp. You might cut yourself. All of these are obvious. None of this information is new information. Yes, it's sharp. That's why I was asking for it. If I wanted to whittle with a rock, I would have whittled with a rock. But I wanted something sharp. So, of course, there's a risk of cutting yourself. So, it's a, here's this thing, and this thing, which might be useful for what you want to do, has some danger associated with it. Uh, this plot line was a real famous plot line in a classic Christmas movie, a Christmas story, where the main protagonist wanted to get for Christmas a Red Ryder BB gun with a compass in the stock. Remember this? And he said, what do you want for Christmas? And he told Santa, and he told his parents, told everybody else, wanted a red rider to be become accomplished in the stock, and the response is, you'll shoot your eye out. Yeah, you're just like the first service. Can't memorize verses, but we know that line. No, I'm mostly kidding. You'll shoot your eye out. Why would you say, well, here's this thing, which has some use for a young man getting a target practice in, uh, the fun of shooting, whatever it might be, but there's some inherent risk to it, and so therefore it comes with a warning. And so the warning is given and maybe seems somewhat obvious. And so then we get to our parable of the foolish rich man. And I want to sort of frame it in this way. Jesus is handing us over a thing. And it's his resources, our assets, our money, our stuff. And he is telling us, he's, he's handing over this thing, this, his stuff. He's saying, here's the stuff. Be careful. It's dangerous. And the difference between the pocket knife and the Red Ryder BB gun is we don't understand the stuff 
has some risks associated with it. In fact, we think it's perfectly safe. But maybe we could frame it another way. A really good pocket knife, and in fact, the Proverbs say it this way, the wise worker will sharpen his axe. It makes it easier to do the job if it's sharp. So the, the best kind of pocket knife is a sharp pocket knife. So I might suggest this. The more effective a thing at getting something done is, the more the potential risks. And resources, money, stuff, on face value, no arguments, no ifs, ands, or buts, gets stuff done. I can take 15 bucks, go to McDonald's, hand that in the window, food comes out. It gets it done. If I have enough money, I can get nearly anything done. It gets stuff done. And so we must understand, because of, because of the inherent effectiveness of the thing is so high, the risks associated with it are likewise very high. So the title of the message today in the parable of the big barns is the perils of possessions. The perils of possessions. I'm going to give you two perils of possessions. First one is this, the possessions can be lost. So this young man or this old man, we don't know, he comes up to Jesus and he's in a dispute with his brother because uh, there's some kind of dispute over the inheritance. We don't know what the dispute was, whether he was getting none of the inheritance, whether he was getting just a very small portion of the inheritance, whether he was the older son or the younger son. Frankly, none of that matters because if it mattered, Jesus would have included it in the parable. All we know is there is dispute. And here's what this person believes Everything would be fine if I could keep what is rightfully mine. And in the absence of the ability to keep which is rightfully mine, I will do whatever it takes to keep that which is rightfully mine. He has misunderstood one of the things that's true of possessions. They are perilous because they can be lost. And this is what's happening to him. And he comes to him, Jesus, help us work out this dispute. And Jesus says, who made me judge over you? What's the right answer to that question? Who made me judge over you? You're God, you're judge over everybody. That is who you are. But the young man doesn't respond that way. And Jesus says this, take care. Handing the pocket knife over, careful. Handing possessions over to us, careful. Take care. Be on your guard against covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The guy wants to know, how do I keep my stuff? And Jesus is saying, careful, your stuff can be dangerous and you need to guard against envy and covetousness. Here's maybe one point we can make from this. It is foolish to desire deeply that which cannot be retained, and that which cannot be safeguarded. It is foolish to desire covetousness, desire deeply that which cannot be kept. So the parable of this rich man. And that's how the band is described at the beginning of the parable. Verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. What was he before his land produced plentifully? A rich man. Before he had plant, uh, highly productive fields, he was already wealthy. He was wealthy and his land produced uh, plenty. So here's what is happening to this man, especially as might be seen through the eyes of those living in Israel. He is a wealthy man, which means God has blessed him. 
This is their understanding, would have been their understanding of the Old Covenant. Someone is blessed by God in the land promises of God. As they are pursuing God, God would pour out land-based blessings, which would mean crops and resources. So this man was already in the minds of most people in Israel, a blessed man. And then on top of that, his land produced plentifully. Who made his land produce plentifully? God did. Of course, God did. How do we know that? Because God said this when they were going to the promised land. You don't irrigate Israel. Israel will be irrigated by the rains of heaven itself. So the fact that he had a plentiful crop meant that he had rain at the right time, no rain at the right time, heat at the right time, cool at the right time. None of these things are in his control. He plants the seed, goes inside, turns on Hulu. Comes out a few months later, harvests it if God sees fit to bless him. So having been blessed, he experienced a greater blessing of God. All observers of his life would have looked at his life and said, you've got it all. You've got everything you could ever want. And you have God himself who has seen fit to draw close to you to pour out his blessing on you. Did the man respond in that way? No, instead of placing his hopes and rest in God who blesses, he decided, I will put my hopes in rest in that which cannot be kept. Instead of resting in the Lord, I will rest in that which cannot be retained. Does that make any sense at all? Of course it doesn't make any sense. Look what happened. He said this, verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? What shall I do? There's a question. What should I do here? What's the right course of action? When we have to make a decision based on what is the right course of action, that decision is always going to come from that which we value. When we ask a question, what should be done, we're going to make a decision based on what we think is right and that which we value. So when he says, what should I do? The answer is going to flow from that which he treasures. And look what he says. I have nowhere to store my crops. What's the key word there? My. Whose crops? What exactly have you done? You happened to wake up one day and it didn't rain. Wake up another day and it did rain. Woke up another day and nobody invaded and took your crops. No pests came in and ate them. No locusts, no deer or whatever else. And yet, nonetheless, despite the clear evidence that God is the one who has provided the blessing and the further blessing, at the end of the day, at harvest time, he puts it all into his hands and says what? Mine. Since the value is, I will have hope if I can retain that which is mine, I must do whatever it takes to keep that which is mine. And the only way to do that in that culture is to tear down your barns and bear, build bigger ones hire more guards, build more fences, hope that nobody steals it, and hope that no rodents invade. My crops, since the crops are mine, what ought to be? What ought to be is I should keep, which is all that which is mine. The only way to keep all that is mine is to tear down my barns, build larger barns. So what he is doing is just simply make his, making his decisions based on what he values. Why does he value keeping that which he believes is his? The parable tells us. Look at it. 
Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So here's where the values come from. He has a particular hope. His hope is for rest. His hope is he can have ease. The stresses of life will fall away. The worries of life will fall away. And he can do what all of us want to do. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the stresses and eases of life will fall away. Where does he have hope? Where does he anticipate that will come from? He says it. You have what? Ample goods. He has hope of rest because he is able to keep his stuff. He has values which say, if I keep my stuff, I can reach my hopes. If I reach my hopes, I will be able to rest and I can eat, drink, and be merry. And look what he is called by God. God said to him, what? Fool. Why does God call him a fool? Because he believed a false hope. That if he were able to keep all of his stuff and get all that he wanted, he would be at rest. To think that if we can keep what we have and get what we think we ought to have, that we will have rest, it is a false hope. What's your number? I've asked you this before many times. What's your number? We all have a number. When you get in college, your number is whatever your tuition bill is. If I had X amount of dollars, I could pay college and I'd be fine. When you move out, get out of college, if you had just X amount of dollars to buy a car, you'd be fine. Then you get a little older, you get married. So if I just had X amount of dollars, I could pay off the house. If I had just X amount of dollars, I could buy a, a rental. If I had X amount of dollars, this is where some of us are, right? I could pay off that medical bill. If I had X amount of dollars, I could finally go and see that country I've always wanted to see. If I had X amount of dollars, everything would be fine. What's your number? Don't say it out loud. Everybody's got that number. This guy had his number, and it was what he had. If I can keep it, everything will be fine. The Bible tells us this quite clearly, and none of us believe it. That is a false hope. It is not true. Now, the entire culture believes it's true. And you and I believe it's true. And in fact, you will do your heart good service if you will be willing to finally admit, if you haven't already, that you do also believe it's true. Even if just a little bit. That if I finally had this, everything would finally be fine. I would be able to eat, relax, take it easy. It's a false hope. Why do we believe it so readily? Because it works. Because when we do get stuff we wanted, it, it does feel good, doesn't it? When you finally save up and you get the thing you want, it, it does feel good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it works. That's like I said, the effectiveness of the tool in likewise measure makes the tool that much more dangerous because if the stuff works to give me what I want in the short term, well, it's kind of annoying because... I want God to be like that too. I want him to make me feel that way, just like that. And he doesn't do that. Why? Because he simply refuses to acknowledge that I'm God. Yeah, he just refuses. He just simply insists on doing things his way. Isn't it terribly frustrating? Now, in church, we're not supposed to be frustrated with God. But you are at home, so let's just deal with it, right? 
So money, this is the thing. Money does what we wish God would do. If I have stuff, I can get stuff done. I go to God in prayer over and over and over and over again. And what's happening, God? Anytime, anytime. Okay, you're not going to handle it? Well, it turns out I got stacks on stacks. I can get it done. Our hope comes from this. If we have enough, we can finally rest. Look what else the Bible says about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, who are the rich in this present age? If you make your full-time residence in the United States of America, I am sorry, that's you. Every time I say that, I offend somebody. I'm going to keep saying it. As for the rich in this present age, that's all of us. Now, some are richer than others. That goes without saying. But all of us, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, instead on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The warning here for the wealthy is this. Don't put your hopes in riches. Why? They're so uncertain. They are so uncertain. Look what happened to the guy with the big barns. Builds them up, fills them up, and then what happens? The Lord calls him home. In my particular job, I get to see a lot of different people in different stages of life. And unfortunately, in fact, it's one of the parts of the being a pastor that is most troubling is I get to spend a lot of time with people who either are dying or have had someone in their home die. And you have friends and neighbors who are like this, but there's too many stories that we all know and we try to ignore them when they come up. They worked and worked and saved and saved and here's the plans, bought the timeshare, bought the RV and then retired and the diagnosis comes in. Or the spouse's diagnosis comes in. And now all those hopes and dreams, 30 years of work and save and scrape and scrimp, we're going to sit at home and pay for caregivers. We know these are stories that happen, but yet we continue to tell ourselves, if I save and save and save, there will be a time where everything will be rest. It's a false hope. It never comes. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, one of the wealthiest people in the world, certainly the wealthiest at the time. Solomon writes this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Speaking from experience, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Did you read that? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. We've all had this happen. You're working away, you get a big bonus. You come up with 10 things that you want to spend it on. Of course, your spouse comes up with 10 things they want to spend it on. And then the bill comes in for the amount of the bonus. Anybody ever had this happen? And now instead of being happy that God provided in advance for a bill we didn't know about, we're angry that we don't get to spend our stuff on what we wanted. And that's right. When goods increase, the mouths to feed seem to increase. What advantage has the owner but to see them with their eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I don't know where, how you got to where you are, but I can think back to the days when I was making minimum wage. And I always had this dream. I'll tell you what the dream was. I was looking forward to the day when I could have a job where you showered before going to work instead of after. I don't know what, I, there was just a thing. I thought, that'll be interesting. 
to have a, a to flip that. I don't know why that was a thing, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting dirty at work. But in my mind, I couldn't wait till I could have a job where I shower before work and after. But I remember back in those days, it's funny, go to work, seven bucks an hour. Yeah, minimum wage was seven bucks an hour. Now, some of you go, I remember it was a dime to move irrigation pipe. <laughs> you need a better negotiator is what I say. Anyway, you go home, work's done, go to sleep, and you just sleep, right? And then years later, right, you ring a couple of wins on the belt, you notch a couple of successes, you got some stuff squirreled away, you got things, and now you go to bed and it's just, isn't it just running? What about this? You know, some of us keep a notepad next to our bed because we think maybe if I write it down, I won't, I'll be able to stop thinking and I can get some sleep finally. We're living in a house 10 times as big as our first apartment and driving a new car instead of an old car that we have to push down the hill to start and we can't sleep at night. Maybe Solomon was onto something, wasn't he? Money doesn't bring the rest, we think. Money cannot satisfy. And the question will be when we will finally believe God and be convinced this stuff doesn't satisfy. The perils of possessions, the first peril of possession, they can be lost. And our deep-seated desire to retain and hold and keep to somehow find some rest is a false hope. Because they cannot be kept. And they do not satisfy. So, of course, this is sort of proverbial. Life is not our possessions. But the question is, what about the wealthy who go their whole life and get richer and richer and richer? What of them? Some people do seem to live uh, the life with the silver spoon. They live long and healthy and prosperous and wealth upon wealth and wealth, and they die peaceful and happy with their children gathered around them. What about them? Second peril of possessions. They can only be kept while you're alive. They can only be kept while you're alive. Look at the end of the parable. Verse 18, the guy says this, I'm going to tear down my barns, I'm going to build larger barns. There I'm going to store my grain, I'm going to rest, I'm going to relax, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And God says this, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What is he saying? They won't be yours. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He had great plans and they were ruined by the reality he wasn't going to live forever. And Jesus wonders this, what happens if you don't live to enjoy the stuff you've worked so hard to keep? And here's what his point is in verse 21. It is foolhardy. It is Foolish to invest heavily in stuff that has value for so short a time. It is foolish to invest heavily in stuff that has value for such a short period of time. And what's the period of time Jesus is talking about? He's saying you're going to invest heavily in stuff that only lasts as long as you're alive? That's such a short perspective. Jesus is looking at an eternal perspective. Why would we invest heavily in our lifespan when we have all of eternity to think about? Look again at verse 17. The man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Jesus is asking us to think in an eternal perspective and change the question to this. What should I do I have God's crops 
in my hands. Instead of saying, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. The question actually is, what should I do? I have God's stuff. What is the right course of action for a wise investor knowing that God has seen fit to give me his stuff for a time being? What should I do? And the answer is this according to Jesus. Whatever allows me to be rich toward God. God gives me stuff that fades. And the question is, what should I do? Whatever it takes to convert stuff that fades into stuff that never fades. That's what a wise investor does. He says, I'm gonna, I can take stuff that has very little value and convert it by God's grace into stuff that lasts forever. And this is a, uh, the peril of possessions is we want to keep stuff and fail to recognize we only get to keep it till we're dead. Instead, the wise investor says, what do I do with the stuff while I'm alive so that when I see God, I have stuff that lasts forever? Psalm 49 says this. Psalm 49, 16. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. What do you get to take away with you when you die? Nothing. His glory will not go down with him, meaning his worldly glory. Verse 18, For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself. Do you get praise when you are successful in this world? Yes, of course you do. There's nothing wrong with that again, inherently. His soul will go to the next generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Everything stays here when we die. Barns are useless to dead people. However, riches in the Lord never go away. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. It's a little bit later on than the parable, a little further down the passage, probably on the same page of your Bible. Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'm just going to stop there for a minute and let you settle on it. He gave you what? He gave you the kingdom. I was just hoping for a place to stay. Maybe an apartment. I've said it this before. I am just really hoping that in heaven I can be the janitor. Why? It's, it's never going to get dirty. I mean, what's a janitor? What's a janitor going to just push my mop bucket around? What are you doing? Cleaning. Looks pretty good, huh? But Jesus, he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm giving you the kingdom, like the whole thing. You get the kingdom. And we sit here uh, crunching our numbers and, and stressing and pulling our hair out. God is such a cheapskate. And he's going, really? You're worried because I haven't given you more stuff that blows away in the wind when I have seen fit to give you my kingdom, which is an inheritance that will never fade. God is not a cheapskate. He's overly generous. When we walk across the threshold into glory, into his presence, we're going to say, Lord, this is, this is too much. You, you, this is too much. This is embarrassing. You went over the top. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God is not asking us to take a vow of poverty and sell all our stuff. What he is asking us to do is be 
really wise investors. He puts this stuff in our hands, money, resources, time, people. And all he's saying is, as my son, as my daughter, as an heir to the kingdom of heaven, what does it look like for you in your particular unique situation to be a really good investor? What, what does it mean for you by seeking God in his grace and the leading of his spirit to use your resources that he has put in your hands and to be an investor in the eternal kingdom of God? So it's not a vow of poverty. It's not living a life of abject uh, nothingness. It is just simply saying God has made me a steward of what he has put in my hands. What does it look like to be a good steward and to invest well in eternal things. And he tells us exactly how to do that in the parable of the big barns. He says this in verse uh, 15, take care, guard against envy. So first step of this, and, and there's a lot we could draw out, but I'm going to focus on this. The first step of this is take care, guard against envy. What is envy? Envy is wanting what I don't have or dissatisfaction with what I do. It's just quite simple. Envy is merely, I want something I don't have, and I'm dissatisfied with what I do have. James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? What's the answer to that? The other guy. The answer is obvious. What causes fights among us? Them. It's not my fault. Are you kidding me? If the people around me were more reasonable and understood the brilliance of my insight, we would have much less fights. Basically, if I always got my way, there would be no more fighting. That's not what causes fights and quarrels among us. What is it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel? What causes fights and quarrels among us? is we have envy for what the other has. So I have stress in my life that I think would be fixed if I had what you have, right? You know who this is, and you've got someone in your life. You've got stress and worry in your life, and if you had it like they had it, you wouldn't be stressed. And it drives us nuts. They don't understand how good they have it, do they? Do they appreciate how good they have it? Of course they don't, because they're not as worthy as us. If God would finally see fit to recognize I am worthy of what they have, then he could give me what they have, and I would be fine, and they would finally realize how good they actually had it, and they could live my life for a while. So what happens is my envy gives me permission to wish evil on someone else. If only they knew what it was like to live in my shoes for a day. In fact, that might be kind of good for them. That's what he's sort of alluding to. You covet and cannot have, and so you murder. We would wish ill will on someone who has it the way we wish we had it because they don't deserve it as much as we do. So we dispute with our brothers. I can't have what I want, and so I'm filled with quarreling and fighting. Here's another way envy works. I have something I want, and you're in my way. Maybe... This has happened in a relationship you, with, you have with your spouse. There's two things married people apparently fight over most. We're only going to talk about the one. Save the other topic for another day. You don't know what the topic is? Okay, you can do research online. It's sex. I feel like i got to let you in on the punchline. 
So you decide, I want this. I want this thing. And you know what? I ought to have this thing. And then your spouse has the gall to want something else. But there's not enough money in the pot for us both to have what we want. And I ought to have what I want. They ought not to have what they want. So now we have the problem. I can't have what I want, envy, and it's your fault. What causes fights and quarrels among us? When others have the gall to get in the way of me keeping my possessions and having what I ought to have. These are the perils of possessions. Not only this, I am fighting with others that I will be with forever in the kingdom of God so that I can have something that's going to last like a year and a half. I can't have what I want, and it's your fault, so therefore we quarrel, therefore we fight, therefore I wish ill will on you and others. What's the answer to that? Instead of being filled with envy, we're filled with the Spirit's power to be content. Contentment is merely this, I am satisfied with what I have, and I am satisfied with God. That I am satisfied with what I have, And I am satisfied with what God has granted. Perils of possessions, they can can be lost. They can only be kept while alive. Okay, three thoughts on this and then we're going to close. You're welcome. Luke 12, 22. Luke 12, 22. How do we know if we've fallen into the trap of perilous possessions? Here's one way. He said this to his disciples. This is Jesus in verse 22 of Luke 12. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. So again, this is trailing right on the heels of the parable of the big barns. And he's saying this, worry and envy go hand in hand. Worry and envy go hand in hand. In fact, this is how it works. I am worried about whatever I'm worried about with my stuff that it's going to go away, or I don't have enough, or I got a bill to pay, or my car's going to break, whatever it might be. So I'm worried about it. And, and the worry, in some sense, is legitimate. I need to have enough money to buy food and pay the mortgage and to fix the car. So this is a legitimate thing that ought to be responsibly handled. Since I am worried about it, which basically says, I know more about what ought to be than God does. That's really what worry is. Since I am worried about I therefore have permission to be envious of those who don't have this concern. So worry and envy go hand in hand. Basically, worry makes envy okay. The problem is not that I am envious. The problem is God hasn't given me what I ought to have to handle the situation I'm in. So worry and anxiety tends to feed the monster of envy and gives me permission. I deserve what they have. So one of the ways we can get at this, how am I envious? Because a lot of times say, are you envious? Am I jealous? You say, no, no, no. But one of the ways we can get at it and really look at our heart closely, if my, my life is bound up with worry and looking and wishing, I, if I had all these other things that would fix this worry, that's sort of, a, sort of a barometer there. Kind of a light that flicks on. We say, you know what? I think there might be an envy thing going on down there. Because worry sort of shows us that. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, this time at verse 18 instead of verse 17. The Bible sees fit to apply the passage for us so we don't have to work too hard here. Regarding the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So the answer to how do I stop worrying, how do I stop envying is not more stuff. 
The answer to it is actually a sense of open-handedness, where it is God's stuff, and I'm going to keep my uh, antenna tuned to opportunities to serve others with the stuff God has seen fit to give me. So spirit-led, spirit-guided generosity is actually the move, uh, the obedience we can exercise to help move into having kingdom-minded resources. So how does this work? Because Jesus was generous on the cross, I can be generous to others. Jesus saw fit, the owner and creator of the universe, to abandon all the privilege and pomp of glory, to come to heaven, give his life, take upon himself our shame, our guilt, our punishment. And all we're doing by acting as generous people, we're saying, he did it first. He took my sin he abandoned his, his, his glory for a time. And he has seen fit to give me the kingdom of God as an inheritance. So therefore, Jesus having been generous first, I want to likewise be Jesus-y. And be willing to be generous and kind to others when God by his spirit moves and there is opportunity to do so. Spirit-motivated, spirit-led generosity in serving others is really smart investing. It's a way to take stuff that is temporary and convert it into eternal glory. Okay, the last thing. What was the man seeking with his big barns? Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. We call that rest. What he is saying is, I want to rest. Don't we all want to rest, be free from the pressures and the stress? And this is actually a biblical calling. We are to rest. It's very early in the Bible. It's like, the, I think, the seventh day of creation. God said, you know what? I could earn another buck. I may as well put another day in. Isn't that what he said? can't remember how that verse goes. No, he says, I'm done. I'm going to rest. And then he leads the people of Israel into the wilderness, and there's manna on the floor of the wilderness and they pick it up every day and eat it and what do they do by faith in God they rest they have enough rest is this knowing that God has it handled there's two ways to approach rest we can approach rest like the guy with the big barns and say if I finally get enough I will be able to rest it never works it never works there's another way to rest, to say, God is smart enough to know that if I will rest in him, I can finally get off the hamster wheel and stop chasing more and more and more. So we're going to do it this way. You ready? Who's got enough food to make it to the end of the day? I mean, everybody squared away. If you don't have enough food to make it to the end of today, let us know. We got food pantry. We'll buy you lunch. We'll buy you dinner. You're covered. Everybody have enough food to make it to the end of the day? Some, I'm not worried about you. Everybody got enough food? Everybody have a place to stay? I'm looking. Nobody, if anybody needs a place to stay, we'll get, we'll, get a, we'll get a suite at the Regency if you need one. Anybody need a place to stay? So we've all got food for today and a place to stay for today. We good? So what can we do? So we're good. So, so we just read, God has seen fit. And we got an entire room full of people that God has seen fit to give us everything we need until we go to bed tonight. So today, what can we do? We're, we're good. We can just rest. Well, what about tomorrow? What are, we, what are we going to do about tomorrow? 
Let's do this again tomorrow and see what happens. We're going to let, I think what the Bible says, correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. I think it's got enough worries on its own. So we, are we all in? We're going to do this today? I'm completely unconvinced about your enthusiasm. You're like, this is totally unrealistic. That just because I have enough food for today, I'm supposed to be cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually we are. Because what if tonight's the night we're punching out? That, that's not completely out of the question, is it? What if tonight's the night that we're, boom, gonzo, you're having our service next weekend. And we're going to spend the whole day worrying about Tuesday. Or Wednesday. We can rest. Because God has given the kingdom. Not because we have enough stuff. Not because we will have enough stuff. But God is just that kind.